This is a HeadGum Podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. They're incredible sheets. They're incredible bed sheets that were inspired by NASA. They use silver-infused fabrics and make temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature. And let me tell you a little something about myself. When I first moved to New York City, I essentially went to a corner bodega, bought a set of sheets that were made out of what felt like cardboard, and that's what I slept on for like years. I thought I guess I thought I just wasn't even worth more or like I just didn't even know that comfort was possible. And then I started like actually realizing like oh I don't have to live like this and buying actual sheets that made sense and truly the temperature regulating property of these NASA inspired sheets by Miracle Made or like the apotheosis of adult living like you can live with comfort with temperature regulating the funny thing is i thought temperature regulating was just like something you had to just deal with your whole life that there was no sheet that could help you with that your body just went through wild temperatures and that just you know sucked and you had to just deal with it but you don't have to deal with it because you can get miracle made sheets they're self-cooling for better sleep they're also this one's really fun and it's actually really important for my husband they're self-cleaning because they're infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. And because of that, it's designed for your skin. So it stops the bacteria so it doesn't clog your pores and it doesn't cause as much, you know, breakouts and acne, which is a big problem for my husband. Since we started using Miracle Made, my husband has just had way less of the breakouts and the clogged pores. And like I said, they're just like, luxurious. Um, They're designed for a person who's graduating from the cardboard sheets of their youth. (laughs) Graduate from those, you guys. So go to try miracle.com slash fake the nation. Again, that's T-R-Y, try miracle, M-I-R-A-C-L-E dot com slash fake the nation. And at the checkout, use the promo code fake the nation and you'll get three free towels and you'll save an extra 20%. And Miracle's so confident in their product that it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you're going to get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. And thanks so much to Miracle Made for sponsoring this episode. And thanks so much to Miracle Made for regulating my body temperature at night uh, with the sheets. I really love them. Fake the Nation, episode 275. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about culture, and where my daughter woke me up at 5 a.m., so I'm in a mood. I'm your host, Nikki Farsad, and I try not to harp on the fact that I am a parent. Do I harp on it, listeners? I'm trying not to harp. But holy shit, some days, it's the worst. Today, we're going to talk about parenting of a different kind, by which I mean the delicate parenting of the United States Senate by the American people. We are the parents. We'll also ask why so many people are quitting their jobs. And finally, that Katie Couric RBG thing, what was that about? 
Uh, I am so excited um, by our panel today. Today, I'm joined by this wonderful, wonderful comedian who you've heard on this show before. He is a friend of mine. He's one of the earliest people I ever even met in comedy. Um, he has a new special out. Uh, well, I'm just going to spoil the introduction by saying I'm talking about Christian Finnegan. Just so you know, he has a special out. It's called Show Your Work. You can get it on all the places where you would normally get these things like Apple TV and all that crap. But the place I highly recommend getting it is directly and most easily from ChristianFinnegan.com. Again, his special is out. I have been waiting for this special and it's out and I'm so excited and you will love it. You will love it. I can guarantee it because I have seen bits and pieces of it around town and he is uh, one of one of the best uh, working. So, hi, Christian. Hello, Nagin. Thank you so much. That's very gracious of you to say. And uh, maybe your daughter didn't wake you up this morning. Maybe your daughter was just anticipating my new special. And <laughs> she was like, I need some of that acerbic wit in my life. <laughs> that's exactly That's exactly what, what happened. Now, this next person, um, he is uh, doing our show for the first time. I had the pleasure of doing his show. Uh, he's co-host of the show Majority 54. Um, it's a podcast on the Wonder Network. You should definitely check that out. It's super fun. He's also a veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces. He's also the 39th Secretary of State of Missouri. Folks, it is none other than Jason Kander. Hey, Jason. Howdy. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, gosh, what a wonderful panel we have. And I just want to remind listeners uh, to visit patreon.com slash Farsad If you want to support the show, you can subscribe for as little as $1. And shout out to the people that do subscribe at $1. Um, and, uh, you know, for a mere $4, which is like the, the cost of a cardamom bun from the new Danish bakery uh, around the corner from my apartment... <laughs> You can uh, get bonus episodes of the show um, and all sorts of fun stuff. This week, Marie Hill and Cody Linguist talk about embarrassing things older people share with younger people. Uh, so you can just imagine that list. It was really fun. We represented a very ridiculous spectrum of memories from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So definitely uh, subscribe to Patreon and check that out. It's patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad. Let us uh, get into topic number one. Okay, so he's a conservative. He's a Democrat in a red state. He lives on a houseboat. That is most of what people know about Joe Manchin. Uh, and yet he controls so much of our fate. Uh, Biden is trying to pass a signature Build Back Better plan, uh, but it's stalling because the big question is, what exactly does Manchin want? And then addendum to that is, what exactly does what exactly does Kirsten Sinema want, who's also a similarly confusing uh, character or p- potentially even more confusing? Uh, so I guess just I'll start... Um, I'll start with you, Christian. What do you think of our situation and Joe Manchin? <laughs> yes, better better to start with me and let Jason actually actually lay down the actual knowledge on this topic. Um, that was my thinking. <laughs> By the way, get Christian Finnegan's new album. Yes, please. Right, it's continue. a lot of policy talk and uh, real lottery. <laughs> um, you know... My my theory, my based on nothing the whole time, is that Manchin wants all the climate stuff out, but he can't say that. So he's pretending he has all of these other issues with price. And I'm sure that some of that's true as well. I'm sure he just, in general, whatever people, whatever money Democrats want to spend, he wants to spend less as part of his personal branding. Uh, I'm the Democrat who spends less money. 
Um, but, but I really do think that quietly, if all the climate stuff was out of the bill, I bet he would magically be okay with it. That's, I base that on nothing but just reading and watching the news. But, um, and I, but I do think a lot. Did you stare, stare at a houseboat long, like, and, and glean answers? Yeah. I, I, I just would love to know though, like the mansions of the world, like just play this out for me. So you get what you want. This passes the way you want it. And what happens in 2022? Like, like what, how, what do you think is the trickle-down effect of you having just hamstrung this entire prospect, the entire Joe Biden, you know, uh, 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 program, whatever you want to call it, uh, right. agenda. Um, you've now hamstrung the Joe Biden agenda. And now what happens? How do you see this like, like playing out in a positive way? Because I only see negatives. But, you know. Jason, what do you see? So I've met Joe Manchin, but I don't. I, I don't know Joe Manchin. I I used to know Kirsten Cinema. Um, oh, like like okay. we were friendly, and like I campaigned for her and stuff. Um, I we have not talked in about a year. I'm confused by her. So let's do them one at a time. Um, yeah, Manchin. Please. So I actually think this is with Manchin. I think it's somewhat generational. I think I think the dude is genuinely pretty conservative. Um, as is nearly every West Virginian. Um, and, you know, like the guy, I mean, he, he, he clearly has, he understands something about his state or his state understands something about him. Like that, that's a real thing that's happening. Like Democrats continuing to get elected in West Virginia. There's, that's like way outside the norm. Right. So you put all that aside and then you go, okay, so he doesn't seem to want anything. He's not like angling for a cabinet position. He's not like baking in a bunch of stuff uh, for West Virginia. He's not like turning West Virginia into like Coruscant from Star Wars. Like it's not, it's not <laughs> like, you know, cause like if you go back and you look at what, uh, what's his name? Was it Ben Nelson, the, the Senator from Nebraska during the original Obamacare debate? Like he got a bunch of stuff from Nebraska. That's not happening. So here's what I think the deal is. I think it's generational. I think that there are some of these people who have been in the Senate or, or in Washington long enough that they're institutionalized. And, you know, Washington, D.C. has the best ceilings in the country. Like you can stand in those buildings, you can look up at the ceilings and you can really convince yourself that something truly special is taking place in the building. <laughs> and, and you can really easily lose track of the fact that it's just a building where people go to work right. and right. and so if you think about like during the democratic primary for president when you know and, and president biden ended up coming around to understanding to a certain degree that like you're not gonna you're not gonna convince a lot of these people but it took a while and there was that you know there were those moments on the debate stage where you'd have you know the the younger progressives being like these people are not gonna come along and and president biden being like no i can get them and he eventually was sort of persuaded okay some of these people i'll never get well mansion is still sort of in that you know 140 step or 150 whatever it is pro like program of understanding that there's no negotiating with these people and that this isn't the washington you came up in and so like the dude is like from what i can tell from talking to you know his colleagues like friends of mine in the Senate, he's earnestly going around and trying to negotiate a voting rights bill. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, no one's going to vote for that. Right. Yeah. Because I remember when I was secretary of state of Missouri, uh, you know, I remember in 2013 going to Republicans in the legislature and being like, OK, what if we did a voter voter ID program that could never disenfranchise anybody, but it like, you know, we spent all this money on like biometric readings and everything. And and then it took me like a few months to realize, you know, eight years ago that like, no, no, 
no, they don't actually think there's fraud. Like, they just don't want black people to vote. Like, Joe Manchin is eight years behind the rest of us. He's, right. he's in the negotiating yeah. phase of grief about bipartisanship. And what we need, and I don't know if we're going to get it, is we need him to work through an accelerated grieving process about the institution. <laughs> of the so dead on, man. And, and so far, it's just not happening. Like, it's so it's so bizarre and I think we're going to talk about RBG in the next segment and how she was a little behind the times on some stuff and it's I think it's so interesting to me and I, I when I read these stories one thing I keep saying to my husband is please don't let me age to the point where I don't understand where America is you know what I mean right. and I think yeah. that is like something we're seeing happen in real time and in some ways it's quaint right it's like oh that's lovely like he's really trying he's trying but it's like it's it's lovely to the point of delusion right it's not it's not helpful um in any way uh the other weird thing is that he's okay with raising taxes you know which is like a fun normal democratic position but like not okay with the um with the energy stuff the uh, look i don't know anything about west virginia but i can imagine that the, that Biden thought about some of that stuff and maybe had some plans for West Virginia's coal industry. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In replacing some of that energy with solar and nuclear and wind in West Virginia. I don't think like any Democrats like, yeah, so our plan is fuck you, coal, and you get no more jobs. The end. Right. Like, I think part of this is really about helping to evolve that state's energy profile. Um and I, I and it's weird to me. It's 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 also weirdly old school to be on that side of it, you know, on a on a from a climate change perspective. It just seems crazy. Yeah, yeah for but, his state, for his but, own state, it seems like, crazy. If if you're if you're just sort of institutionalized and you you know, then like why you know it's like the, right. it's it's hard yeah. to make people understand something that like they've understood to be something completely else for a very right, long right, he's still right, living right. in the, in sort of the the blue dog world and he still thinks right. that he's trying to sell a product that no one's buying anymore <laughs> you know what i mean right. he's yeah. he's trying to sell betamaxes and uh no one is buying <laughs> vcrs even um right. but also i think uh Oh, I had something brilliant, and now it just vaporized. Oh, it's, fuck. Uh, well, don't worry. I've always got more crap to say. <laughs> I, knew, I knew I wait, shouldn't have I taken want, those edibles. But I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to ask. Now, look, we're all secretaries of state here. <laughs> um, but, Jason, let me ask you. Why do we care so much about price tags and so little about outcomes? Because that's the thing that I think... Is it the press that's doing this or do lawmakers sit around and only talk about price tags? Because what I get, I don't actually care what that something is $3.5 trillion. It's an abstract figure over 10 years, over 15 years. These are abstract figures. It doesn't, 3.5 trillion doesn't even mean the same amount in 10 years as it does today, right? It's like these numbers are sort of ridiculous to me. To me, what's important, I mean, I, I say that as someone who also lives in the real world and I understand things cost money and I understand that those need to be appropriated and allocated and I understand that before you at me. But like, why do we not talk about outcomes? Like, I want these outcomes and that's what should be in the media all day long is the outcomes we want. Well, there's a few things here. I, first of all, you're right. Like, it, whether you're talking about one and a half trillion, three and a half trillion, um, making the message about those two things and having that argument is, it's really dumb because one and a half trillion versus three and a half children trillion for the public. It's like, 
you know how like when you, you can have like a paralyzing fear of heights, but you can be in an airplane and you can look out the window and it doesn't affect you because your brain can't conceptualize the height at right. which you're yeah. at, right? Well, one and a half trillion versus three and a half trillion, like our brains cannot like for the average voter, like you're not conceptualizing that. So ha- making that the argument is dumb versus making the argument what we can do in the two bills. And, you know, I heard Speaker Pelosi, who I, I like a lot, sort of kind of put the blame on the media for that. And and some blame does belong on the media, but it's also it's it's democratic messaging that has we we have not done a good job, uh, you know, traditionally of selling the actual ideas versus the process. And then the media, you are running into the problem of like they try and make it simple because like they're like me. Like I came on this and I was like, Hey, I didn't get a chance to look at all the links. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like that's them. They're like, they're like, let's see. I could do a, a, a Hey, Hey, I... edit that out, Stephanie. <laughs> no, edit no, no. That leave, <laughs> leave that in. That's very important to the point I'm making. Right. Is that like, that, you know, if you have a choice between reporting it as Democrats are in disarray, they can't decide over one and a half trillion or three and a half trillion or really telling the story of what gets done at three and a half trillion that doesn't get done at one and a half trillion. Well, like, you know, in a, in a 30 second, 24 hour news deal, like you're going to do the 30 second version. And, yeah. and it's so it's incumbent upon Democrats to use storytelling and to really get this across. Yeah, it, but I remembered my brilliant point from before. Oh yes, it, I hope <laughs> uh, it's. I hope it, this I hope better be brilliant, Christian. No, but I mean, okay. if if bipartisanship truly is what motivates uh, uh, Mansion, you know, the way to do that, like there have to be consequences. The only way to bring the Republicans back from their sort of bad faith fairyland that they've gone into. I mean, they have you ever seen the movie Blazing Saddles? Oh, yes, you know, you know, at the end of the movie Blazing Saddles, they uh, they they lure the the bad posse into town with like this fake town of just like mm-hmm. flat pieces of wood that look like a town. And, they, and then they sort of ambush them. And I feel like Trump sort of rode into town and all of these sort of institutions like bipartisanship and just truth, just truth and honesty sort of revealed them to be just sort of fake planks of wood and sort of pushed them over. And all the Republicans now have realized, like, oh, we don't have to be honest at all like like we can be as we can act in as bad faith as we want to act and that will continue to be the case until there's consequences for that and to me if 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 joe manchin really wants republicans to come back to the table and start acting in a in in, uh negotiating good faith they have to be punished on some level be it at the ballot box or through legislation it's like oh okay so you don't want to engage on us on voting rights well then we're going to pass our own voting rights bill and that's going to encourage you to then maybe come back to the table and it's the same with all of this but as as long as joe manchin allows himself to be dragged to the quote unquote center no matter where the center is uh nothing they'll they'll never be punished for acting in bad faith and and bipartisanship i mean one thing to add to that is that what Senator Manchin, I think, is missing here is that obviously he's assuming that bipartisanship is an outcome that uh, is also you know, coveted by enough Republicans. And it's not. And here's why. The Republicans have made clear that uh, they want to make sure that any Democratic president, including this one, is not successful. And what did what has Joe Biden said is one of his you know major goals is to get bipartisan progress, right? Well, if you're the Republicans right now and you don't control the House and you don't control the Senate and you don't control the White House, what is the one outcome you can control? 
whether something is bipartisan. You can't actually control what's in the legislation, but you can control whether he gets a victory on bipartisanship, which means the one thing that they are incentivized to never do is give him a bipartisan victory. Uh, Jason, you mentioned that you knew Kirsten Cinema. One thing um, I found out about her recently was that she is, I, I thought it was just like a rumor, but I guess she truly does not take meetings with anyone that has campaigned for her <laughs> to get her that Senate seat. There have been people that were out there, um, you know, uh, campaigning for her, like on uh, people who who want questions answered about DACA, you know, people who want questions answered about this bill. Um and she truly doesn't meet with them and she doesn't tell them where she's at and they know and everyone is just confused, which is why people are like hopping on planes that she might be at in the hopes that she'll say something. I mean, there's so many funny stories about that. Um, what do you have any insight <laughs> on what's going on with her? No, because why it's so confusing to me is because, you know, I, I, I know that the way I view Senator Manchin, I laid out, right, is like he has a different idea of what's going on than the rest of us. Yeah. And I don't think that Kirsten has a different idea of what's going on. And what I can't figure out is, you know, early in her career, she, w she was very progressive. And then as she, uh, you know, moved toward running for statewide office, she became much less so, became much more moderate. But what I don't get is sort of this, um, it what it, it feels like maybe her, personality just runs toward being contrarian because I, I feel like she was yes. she was very progressive when um, the party seemed to be going in a, in a very moderate uh, direction because initially honestly like I was like what is Kirsten's angle here and now after it's been long enough that she's been enduring not enduring like because that makes it seem too sort of heroic but like putting up with you know the the flack that she's getting for the position she's taking it's I I do think you reach a point where it's no longer a political calculus. It it has to be something about your personality or the way you do things. And I think that we've reached that. Like initially I thought, okay, she's got some kind of political angle here where she thinks that if she plays this closest to the middle, that she's going to win, you know, reelection in Arizona that way. But I don't think that's the case now. I mean, it's been long enough that I think she's like irritated that people uh, want to push her off this point of view. And I think it's caused her to dig her heels in more. Um, Christian, yeah, it feels like you, it, it feels like yeah. a branding exercise more than uh, <laughs> a, a, a public service. Uh, right, career. right, right, right. Um, yeah, it, it is baffling. And somebody I think on Twitter referred to it kind of uh, again, not to bring up Gen X again, but as sort of a uh, the worst parts of sort of the contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, just sort of like you know, just I'm the guy who gives a middle finger to the camera. You know, I don't care what what the reason <laughs> is. It's just like, that's my posture. Middle finger. Screw you. You know, uh, don't tell me, you know, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. That that kind of right. uh, rage against the machine, no matter what the machine is sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's who knows? I, I think like Jason said, I think a lot of times, especially with social media now, you, you kind of get cornered into a stance and there's no reward for ever backing down because then you'll get vilified for having caved and you'll get dunked on repeatedly. And so people are just constantly doubling down on things that uh, they, you know, maybe in, before the age of social media, it was easier to kind of say, hey, you know what? Can I quietly sort of pivot off of this and uh, change my opinion? Now it's really hard to do that with just constant attention on you 24 hours a day. 
Uh, and so I think that Jason's right that it it just feels like she's just digging in her heels. But I don't. I have no idea what her exit plan is for this. I have no well, other than be a lobbyist. At some point, there's going to be a yeah. I mean, we're going to find out because at some point there's going to be a, a real threat of a primary um, for her, and we'll see. We'll see what the response to that is. We'll see whether that changes things. One thing I, I still feel pretty confident in saying is that if Joe Manchin came out tomorrow and was like, "Hey, filibuster, got to go. Voting rights, top priority. We're doing this stuff." I just would be shocked if if Kirsten Cinema is like, nope, I'm still right where I was. Like, I, right, I just, right, right. I just would that would really surprise me. All right, folks. Um, do you have any insight? Were <laughs> you one of the people that took a flight with Kirsten Cinema and managed to actually get some answers from her? Let me know. Are you Kirsten Cinema? Uh, listening? Are you right Kirsten Cinema? Are you a huge fan of this podcast? You should come on the show. Explain yourself. Uh, and while we uh, take a quick break, we're going to hear about our sponsors who keep the lights on here at Fake the Nation. And when we come back, we'll talk about other mysterious things. Today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. Ugh, folks. I mean, first of all, it's a personal finance app that helps you find and cancel unwanted subscriptions, and it monitors your spending, and it helps you lower your bills. But that's headline news, okay? What it has done for me, it has reminded me of the absolute ridiculous world of things that I have subscribed to. And why have I subscribed to them? Why have I wasted my money in such a way? And thank God that Rocket Money has come around to show me that, hey, Nagin, you don't need a subscription to an obscure Brazilian film archive, do you? One of the things that it found for me once that was really upsetting was that I was paying for a subscription twice. It was an educational app. And you think an educational app isn't going to do you that way, but you know what? It might. It also lowered a bill for me. Lord, my cable bill. Yes, I still pay for cable. Don't worry about it. And then the other great thing is when you are trying to get rid of these subscriptions, you just do it with one tap. You don't have to like call customer service or whatever, all the other miserable things that you do when you're trying to get rid of a subscription. It just does it with one tap. That's one of the actually best things about it because I've had such a hard time in the past trying to unsubscribe from something myself. It lowers your bills for you by up to 20%. 5 million users. It has helped save an average of $720 a year, which makes sense for me because that's about as much as, that's about what I was saving. And with over $550 million in canceled subscriptions, that's what they've achieved. I mean, you've heard me talk about Rocket Money before. It has really improved my relationship with subscriptions. I'm going to just tell you that much. So stop wasting your money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Guys, cancel those unwanted subscriptions at rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back and we're ready for topic number two. 
The Bureau of Labor Statistics announced that 4.3 million Americans, or 2.9% of the entire workforce, quit their jobs in August. And the crazy thing is the numbers for July were already eyebrow-raising. People are calling it the Great Resignation. So my question to both of you is, why is this happening? Christian? I can only really, I only really have insight into a couple of areas of the economy, you know, food and beverage and hospitality, because I'm in sort of the entertainment industry and my wife owns a small business. She owns an entertainment venue. And I think that, you know, a lot of the people that take these jobs, you know, waiters, bartenders, uh, these sort of tip based jobs or low wage jobs, they're taking them while they're trying to figure out their next move or while they're trying to make their real career happen, whether you're an actor or a writer, Mm -hmm. certainly Mm -hmm. in New York, I don't know about other parts of the country. And people have now had 18 months to sort of figure out what their next move is going to be. You know, they're, you know, Mm -hmm. they've, they've had all this time to kind of think about what they want to do with their lives. And so I think that a lot of people are not quite as willing to dive right back into the grind of uh, a bartending job uh, where you're going to have to work, harder for less money because i tell you the the customers are not there uh they're not out right now a lot of the bars are half full a lot of the shows are half empty you know and there's a lot more work in terms of checking vaccinations and you know having people yell at you and stuff and and so i think a lot of people have sort of found a way to make it work they've they've sort of cut their expenditures on a day-to-day basis they're not going on as many vacations they've learned how to kind of stay home And they've learned that they can basically get by without having to take a job that they hated. And I think eventually those people I mean, for a little bit, right? Yeah, Yeah, for a while. For a a little bit, yeah. So, Jason, what do you think? Look, I I talked to so many people during the pandemic who, like, would say to me over Zoom, because I couldn't sit with them in person, they'd say, you know, I really, my job, I'm thinking about changing my job. And this would be a person typically who, like, really liked their job before the pandemic. And I found myself frequently asking the question, do you really want a new job or are you just tired of COVID? And and they would be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. Because I'd be like, maybe your job didn't suck before COVID. And they're like, huh. You know, sometimes people are like, I'm thinking of moving. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of people got divorced. Now, that may have more to do with like they realized they were inside with their spouse all the time. And like that may have exacerbated some eventual fissures and relationships that were coming anyway. But like, I think what happened is, is a lot of people like took the time, like Christian was saying to be like, nah, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Uh, the other thing is, I think people did work to get by during the pandemic and it was mostly telework or gig based work and perhaps realized they liked it better and their job yeah. was held for them. And then when they went back to doing it, they're like, I actually think that this seismic shift in American society uh, caused me to come out on the other side of the crack in the, in the floor. And I went, I'm not sure I actually want to do this anymore. Um, yeah, I 100% so. agree with that. And my, the positive spin on this, and I don't know where this is to be true, but I would not be surprised if in the next couple of years we see a huge explosion of new small businesses and whether they're, you know, in the tech sector, you know, like new apps or or just new small independent ventures and stuff. Because like I was saying, you know, people have had all this time now to kind of do the thing they want to do instead of the thing they had to do. And uh, I'll be interested to see. I I just don't think people are willing yet to take a a job that they hate again. (laughs) They're they're kind of holding out hope. Yeah. So I think part of what you're both saying is that there is is something they talked about. We we read an NPR article and um, that had surveyed a bunch of sort of like psychologists and uh, that that talked about that uh, the pandemic epiphanies 
right? Um, Anthony Klotz, uh, the Texas A&M psychologist, uh, referred to a pandemic epiphanies as basically being able to do some soul searching during the pandemic because there was some free time, because maybe there was a little bit of a cushion there from the, um, from unemployment. Uh, and they were like, Oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Um, be, and the, the weird thing is right now is that the labor market is pretty tight. So you could theoretically get the job you want, but they're not even going for a job that they necessarily do want. So maybe mm. they're just running out their money. Um, another thing that's happening, which, because for me, I was like, I can't imagine ever doing that. I can't imagine ever just quitting my job and being like, I'm just going to live on savings for a while, see what happens. Like, I feel way too much stress and pressure about doing anything like that. And one thing that they talked about in this piece in, in NPR was about how your childhood affects how you spend money or view economic policy. Uh, they basically did it, you know, for example, there's there was a, a study that was done uh, about people who grew up during the market crash of 1929, trying to figure out if those people were more risk, were more averse to like investing in the stock market. And it turns out that absolutely yes, they those people who were around for the stock market crash of 1929, this macroeconomic event, didn't want to you know play with their money in the stock market because they saw what could happen. Um, those of age, who came of age in the 50s and 60s, uh, conversely, were much more gung-ho about investing in the stock market, right? So is there something from your childhood that, that makes you per personally a, like behave in an in a economic way um, if you had to think about it? Well, my marriage is like a perfect example of the two sides of this, right? Like okay. I, I grew up uh, with like we had enough money. Like I grew mm -hmm. up in a family where like, you know, we were pretty privileged. Like the, we weren't missing any meals. My parents were taking in other kids because they could provide for them. And my wife came here uh, as a refugee at the age of seven um, and grew up in, in abject poverty. My wife <laughs> right. is, you know, like, and, and we do pretty well now, but my wife is always like worried that we're going to be I'm not going to say on, yes. like there was a time when she would say on the street, but now like she's, you know, she worries much more about the bills than I do. And, and I've just grown up with this idea of like, mm, it'll work itself out. Like your basic wealthy white privilege upbringing is it, made me have a much more laissez-faire approach to that. Uh, and so I think that's a perfect example of like, I am totally the person who would come out of a pandemic and be like, I don't enjoy going to this job every day, so I'm not going to do it anymore, right? And my wife yeah. is a person who would never, but she would just be like, yeah. no, 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 no. We're going to have a plan and a plan B and, a, you know. It's not, yes, I mean, me. And, yeah, me and your wife. Yes, totally right. get it. And I do think, you know, I, I, I wasn't a refugee, but it was a children of immigrants. And so it was that mentality of like, we literally my parents would say we'll end up on the street. I mean, I was like, <laughs> we're this house is like pretty decent, guys. I just don't think that, <laughs> there's got to be like three other levels of housing before we end up on the just actual streets, you know? Uh, Christian, do you, does this ring true for you that it was there a macroeconomic uh, kind of thing you may have experienced as a child that affects your decision making today? 
Uh, well, similarly, uh, similar to Jason, I, my wife and I have kind of a similar relationship. You know, my wife grew up in a, in, in a tin shed with no running water and electricity mm. and, uh, you know, in, in the deep woods of Texas and, you know, uh, had a trailer, then the trailer got repossessed, you know, lived that life. And as a result, she is way more focused on, on, uh, you know, uh, where's the money coming from and how are we going to get through? And, you know, and I, obviously that is a, a huge benefit to her in terms of her ability to survive and succeed. But I also do think that, you know, I grew up relatively privileged as well, but my, my dad started his own business, uh, when I was a kid and it had good times and it had bad times. Eventually it petered out after about 20 years, but I do think that having just been around him, seeing him do this thing on his own kind of probably had some effect on me kind of going into my own as a, you know, I'm technically I am incorporated, but my business includes one person. Um, But the idea that it'll just like, you know what, I'm going to carve my own way and one way or another, it's going to work itself out. I think that probably was uh, affected by my dad having been a a small businessman, you know. um, I mean, it's weird because I, I would say I grew up like the, you know, like if you look at the 90s, it's not like there was very much I think that's one of those decades of like relative prosperity and internet was starting and people were like, I don't know, let's, let's watch the real world on MTV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I think what, I mean, what else were we doing? Let's I don't know. Fill you know, out our home Nirvana? with stuff from our Ikea catalog. <laughs> right, yeah. right, well, right. Exactly. Like I just, you know, I, I think that my immigrant parents have made me very risk averse. Like I can't handle taking on too much that all that stuff. But, um, I would assume that people who grew up in, you know, in the eighties and nineties may be sort of okay with taking some riskier moves um, as adults, maybe, and and that might, you know, and that yeah, might I mean, I, I think I'm a bit older. I think I'm a bit older than both of you, but um, you know, I'm in that sort of prime Gen X sort of uh, bucket. And this whole, a lot of times I get frustrated with young, or I would get frustrated with younger people because they seem so comfortable with selling out. Whereas to me, in my mind, it's like, no man, like don't sell Mm -hmm. out. Like, and, and then I realized like, oh, they have to sell out. I didn't. It's like when I was out of college in the mid nineties, you could just go get a temp job. Like it it was there for you. You could work for three weeks and then not work for three weeks if you wanted to. Like temp agencies were always looking for people like that does not exist anymore. And so it's it's very easy. Wait, but for real, know. do temp agencies not exist anymore? They, I don't. I mean, I don't. I, don't, I, mean, I haven't. I know because it. I. I, you know I haven't what? met I anybody who said I'm a temp. Comedians recently. were like, I. You know, comedians in the mid two thousands, from everything I remember, were always at temp agencies. So I feel like you, you know why they probably don't is because now because wages have not gone up. I mean, why would you hire a temp agency before, right? So that you could pay somebody entry level wages and not have to worry about them. Now they've been here a year, so now I got to pay them more. Right, well, if, right, if, right. If, if, yeah. if wages aren't going up to keep pace, I mean, everybody's at a temp agency. It's just a, it's just we call it a job. Yeah, or, or we call it, you know, the gig economy, or, you know, these the sort of freelance, you know, that those, right, those right. ads of this on the subway, that Fiverr, F-I-V-R-R, whatever. Yes, and they would kind yeah. of try to almost... Uh, deify the idea of not having health benefits. Like, I make my own schedule, man. You know, like, this is the way to live now. Um, And the doctor is not on my schedule. Yeah, yeah, it's, but I mean, I think it, I I think it's somewhat generational, but I think it is mostly, I think it's mostly how you grew up. I mean, like, to me, like, going back to the example of me and my wife, it's like, 
a, a microcosm of this is every time we go out for a date night and if it's cold, like, you know, I'm going to drop her off at the restaurant and everything. But then I like want to get valet. Right. And valet is like $15. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm like, but see, I will pay $15 to yeah. not be cold for 15 minutes. And she's like, but. $15 is a lot of money. So that's the dichotomy of how we view right. it. She she right. sees she sees $15 going out the window and I see I will hand a person $15 for me to be warm for 15 minutes. And so but that's how I grew up. I grew up with money yeah. buys you things and she grew up with money is a thing we usually don't have. And it doesn't matter that now she and I have the same amount of money. Right. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, folks, let me know what did you quit? Were you one of these people who quit to the during the pandemic? Did you have a pandemic epiphany? Are you a part of the great resignation? I want to hear from you. Why'd you do it? Why now? Um, are you terrified? I think you're going to be great. Okay. (laughs) Hit me up. Um, Okay. Before we move into topic number three, um, I just want to quickly mention an organization called Be The Match. Um, Basically, it helps uh, people find uh, bone marrow. uh, And it could, you know, with one swab, uh, this is from their website, with one swab, we can determine if your bone marrow can save a patient's life. Uh, This organization first came on my radar because there was um, an Iranian, uh, a young Iranian uh, girl who needed... uh, a bone marrow match and they couldn't find one. Um, And one of the things that's really important about an organization like Be The Match is that they need to increase their ethnic profile, right? So that they have more matches for more people. Um, so the more people do it, uh, the, you know, the, the easier it gets to be able to save people's life with uh, a bone marrow. Um, what is it called? Transplant? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, a I bone marrow so. transplant? Yes. Uh, so anyways, <laughs> go to bethematch.org. Again, that's bethematch.org. And thanks to the Fake the Nation listener uh, who reminded me about this great organization. Uh, now let's get into topic number three. Okay, so let's talk about this Katie Couric RBG thing. Um, it was trending on Twitter for like a f- couple of days before I even looked at it because I was like, I just, I don't, do I need to unearth stuff about RBG and make myself feel bad or whatever? Um, and that's exactly the point of this topic <laughs> is we looked at this Daily Beast article and it had the perfect explanatory um, subtitle in case you don't know what I'm, what this uh, little, I don't know, scandal is. Um, it said a former Today Show host protecting a Supreme Court justice at the at, at the suggestion of a New York Times columnist sounds like a conservative fever dream, but it's exactly what happened. Uh, basically, Katie Kirk decided not to air some criticism that RBG had for football players who were kneeling before games. You'll recall Colin Kaepernick um, and Katie Kirk decided to omit some of that, you know, some of that criticism because I think she thought it made her look bad. David Brooks was in there because David Brooks and Katie Kirk had lunch or something. And he was like, oh, I don't know if she understood the question. You know, she's elderly. Um, So first of all, um, you know, Christian, why do you think Katie Kirk did this? Katie Kirk did this. Does it does it make sense that she did it? I, I mean, I find it, it is disappointing and depressing. Um, You know, it it is yet another reminder that, that these people who hold these offices, be it elected or, you know, uh, on Supreme Court, that they're not gods and that you should not put them up on these pedestals uh, that, 
And at the end of the day, and again, I don't mean to be ageist, but an old person is an old person. Um, you know, gener- again, talking generationally, that, you know, uh, I don't know that there are very few people in their 80s who I would default to, a, a very few white people in their 80s that I would assume that their uh, opinions on social justice were in alignment with the youth. <laughs> you know, um, it's probably... It, it was is surprising, and yeah, I do think that Katie Couric deciding not to air not to air that does feed into the narrative that uh, conservatives have said. You know, the sort of democratic media, and and uh, and it it is frustrating. It is sort of embarrassing. I don't agree with that uh, article that you sent around that this is why we got Trump, but that's another uh, story entirely. Um, yeah, I mean, I found it embarrassing and I had that same sort of, uh, reaction when I was scrolling and I saw things about it on Twitter. It's like, I don't need to bum myself out by reading about this right now. (laughs) (laughs) Jason, what do you, what did you make of this? Uh, I don't know. We'll call it scandal or revelation. Um, Well, I think, first of all, I think one thing that hasn't been acknowledged is that like she did just tell us what RBG actually said. Um, like, I mean, like people are acting like, like somebody other than Katie Couric revealed. Right, right. That's what, true. That's true. You know, I'm, like, in fact, I'm doing that. She, I no, think it's this okay. was that's in how her. It's been this was in her own book, and yeah. and and just to make your point, the the omitted quote was the protests. She, this is this is what RBG. Uh, RBG said that the protest basically demonstrated, quote, a contempt for a government that has made it possible for their parents and grandparents to live a decent life, which they probably could not have lived in the places they came from. As they became older, they realized that this was youthful folly, and that's why education is important. End quote. I would have to say that's actually also, just from an editorial standpoint, a confusing statement. Yes, <laughs> you know right. I mean? So that's a, maybe another reason to omit it. But yes, Katie Couric wrote about this in her book. So I think, so I think one, it's important to recognize, like Katie Couric is the source of this. And two, um, that when I saw that quote, I didn't think, oh, she's criticizing, she's taking a stance in this controversy. I, I read that as, that may have been the first time that RBG had actually been introduced to the controversy. Like the way I read that quote. And so then when you look at some other, what Katie Couric said is she, when the whole, like she was elderly and didn't understand the question. I didn't take that to mean like she, that she was suggesting senility. I took that to mean like, it was kind of like I asked her about a pop culture thing that Mm. she wasn't really familiar with. And, and she made like a journalistic decision of like, do I do I place this in for full context when it might actually be providing a false context? Because RBG doesn't really may not really. I mean, she's on the Supreme Court. It's not her job to monitor the news. She's not on Twitter. Like she doesn't really know that she's taking a position in a cultural battle. And the last thing I'll say about that is. I consider myself an expert on this because I was once interviewed by Katie Couric, but you've never seen it because I don't think I was a very good interview and it never <laughs> aired. Um, I, I, I sat for like a, this guy, my, this guy may be one of the presidential candidates interview. And frankly, I, I'll be honest. I was so uh, intimidated by the fact that I was being interviewed by a, frankly, very pleasant and lovely Katie Couric that I think it's one of the worst interviews I've ever given. And I think they just went like, (laughs) nobody's going to want to watch this. And it never aired. Um, So I don't think it's out of the question that she occasionally goes, this just isn't very good content. Let's not put it up. Katie Couric flirted with me once. 
Who? Katie Kirk she flirted, flirted with me? me once. Yeah, and I and Ooh. I say that, and I don't I don't say that lightly. Like she, we were I I was doing uh when on Best Week Ever occasionally we would go on uh the Today Show or you know and uh I was in some panel that she was running and uh I don't remember exactly what the context was, but I remember she put her hand on my knee and she said, "Well, come see me after the show and we'll talk about it." And it was like a wink, wink, ha ha. It wasn't like it wasn't she wasn't actually <laughs> making a move, but it was definitely Did like. You just, a, are you making news right here, I, Christian? Well, you know, I, I'm. I, this may have been a dream. I may have just dreamt it, but no. Uh, but yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I, I God forbid I let that opportunity to put that anecdote out there and not take advantage. <laughs> well, I, I want to say that I have no personal anecdotes involving Katie Kirk so I feel very left out of this elite club um but but the the argument that this article that we're reading that you don't buy Christian is that oh yeah I'm this sorry. is these kinds of omissions gave us Trump because it made people m- more and more skeptical of mainstream media um and that's what we've seen I mean and it's also an, the the thing with the article for Matt Lewis, is that he also pointed out this ACLU hubbub where they took a quote from RBG and they changed um, some of the pronouns, but like in brackets. So the quote is like the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, but her well and um, to her well-being and dignity. Uh, and they changed woman to persons, and they changed her with their. Um, to make it a more inclusive comment, but it, it quote, but it was also like in brackets, so like you could tell that they did that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was like, the ACLU is an advocacy organization; they don't have to adhere to journalistic. I mean, not that they're like out there lying, but I'm just saying, like, it's just, just different. They're not mainstream media. You know what I mean? So they're I thought not that reporting. was a weird argument yeah. to make. Yeah, they're not reporting. It's sort of the move is always like what you do is is you just blame you blame the media for the fact that people don't trust them when at the same time like the right-wing money machine spends gazillions of dollars a year telling people don't trust anything (laughs) fact-based that comes from the media and then when katie couric tries to like maybe you know protect the legacy of a, of a of a woman who was confused by a question that katie couric asked they're like see that's why everybody hates the media. It's not the gazillions of dollars and the fact that like I live in Kansas city. When I get outside the city limits and turn on the radio, it is nonstop. Like the Democrats are coming for your children to turn them into whatever. Like that's why people don't trust the media. It's not because like, like (laughs) that's why I'm just, I'm so sick of the, uh, I don't even want to call them never. I don't want to call somebody like Matt Lewis a never Trumper because he's sort of a, an occasional Trumper. But um, the the sort of <laughs> the the conservative literati, you know, who uh, are constantly constantly telling you that the Trump happened because of stuff Democrats did, <laughs> like it's just or or that liberals did or the media did. They're so averse to just admitting any culpability instead of saying what really happened, which is that the money elements of conservative America made a sort of an unholy alliance with. Uh, religious conservatives and social conservatives, uh, white working class social conservatives, and eventually Skynet became self-aware, and all yeah. of these, <laughs> all of these, you know, they they realize like, oh, we don't need the Matt Lewises of the world. We don't need you. And now they're homeless, and they're trying to uh, blame Democrats for the decisions that they made that brought us to where we are now. Um, folks, let me know what do you think. Uh, do you trust mainstream media? I think 
most listeners of Fake the Nation do. I don't know, Kirsten Cinema, do you? As a listener of Fake the Nation, um, let me know uh, what you thought. Were you sad to know about this RBG thing, or were you like she should have just included it? It would have been fine. I don't know. It, afterwards, I was like, oh, she could have included it. I would have just immediately been like, she doesn't know that this is a thing that's happening. That there's a whole movement, and just that's what it sounded like. Because also the answer was so convoluted. So like, yeah, when, when Jason was talking, and, and uh, it made me do made me realize, yeah, that like it's entirely possible she didn't understand the question because she's talking about people from other countries, whereas Colin Kaepernick is an American, and so clearly she was slightly right. Confused about the premise. Confused about what what the right and uh, you know the ceilings in the Supreme Court are very high, so she doesn't know <laughs> what's going on <laughs> in the rest of the world. All right, uh, and folks, that is the end of the show. I'm so happy you were both able to join us. And what I would really love is for people to be able to follow you and all the wonderful things you do. Uh, Christian Finnegan, where do they do that? Uh, I am uh, on all the social media platforms. Uh, I now have joined Instagram. I held off for however Ooh. long, I, but I was forced into it. I hired a woman to help me do social media. And she's like, you know, you can't not do Instagram if you have a new thing coming out. And so <laughs> I think I have 230 followers now. Um, but at at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I am at Christ Finnegan, C-H-R-I-S-T-F-I-N-N-E-G-A-N. And uh, you can also find me on my website, ChristianFinnegan.com. Uh, show your work is the new special. It's on YouTube, Amazon, Apple TV, all that jazz. Uh, I am just finding Christ Finnegan. So <laughs> I know, I folks, be... follow Christian so he <laughs> your... doesn't feel bad about his number of followers. I'm your on 238th Instagram. follower. Ow! So Skyrocketing. Stop. Yeah. Um, and definitely, definitely. Uh, Take uh, get that album, um, get that special. It's going. You're not gonna. Uh, you're not gonna regret it. Jason Kander, where do people follow you? Uh, I'm at Jason Kander on uh, Twitter and and Instagram, and that's and and my podcast is Majority Fifty Four. And like I said, I have been on Majority 54. Yeah. It's such a fun show. I had a great time. Your listeners you are, a great are so guest. thoughtful. Thank you so much. Um, it, so, highly recommend. Highly recommend. Uh, and what I would really love to do is thank all of the wonderful people that make Fake the Nation possible. That's our producer, Danielle Jones Wesley. She's been uh, w- with the show now for a handful of weeks. And oh my God, she's knocking it out of the park. We're so lucky to have her. Our sound engineer, Stephanie Aguilar, who's been with us since our move to HeadGum and who's always fabulous and all the wonderful people at HeadGum. Our theme music is written by Gobby Alter. Um, as always, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'll be sharing more of those reviews in the coming weeks. So definitely do that. It helps people find their show. You can email us at fakethenation at headgum.com. Uh, join the Patreon for bonus content and you can do that at patreon.com slash Farsad. And we'll be back in your earballs next week. That was a HeadGum Podcast.